that's the beautiful thing about psychedelics is that as long as I think I'll be alive, I'm not going to be able to buy an LSD mint at a store because every experience that somebody will have is going to be different. And that, and that kind of defies the act of regulation itself. For me, it was really beautiful to be with women at Tamara who are glowing and they're glowing because they're not constantly bombarded by these advertisements that are telling them that they need to rejuvenate their face with a cream or they need to rewind the time with the serum or something. That's really important, though. I mean, we all need to rejuvenate our face with creams. What kind of creams? <laughs> DMT cream. That um, probably works. Anyway, sorry, go on. I'm all into diversity and stuff. And my appreciation for diversity goes beyond the human race. You know, I think I, I appreciate a diversity of seeds and a diversity of music and a diversity of all animate creatures. And I think that by kind of actively making a point of integrating them very simply into our conversations, that's huge. Greetings, future fossils. Welcome to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Trying to get as epic as possible with that lately. As it seems befitting the content of this episode with our guest Sophia Rocklin saying, among other things, global economies impending rude awakening that it floats like a film. Pop the many times greater volume of all of the things that nature does for us. As author Tony Juniper said with his book, What Has Nature Ever Done for Us? How money really does grow on trees. Our entire economy is just a tiny bubble inside the spinning froth of the circulation of all of matter and energy in nature. The real accounting flows of things goes on at a level so, so vastly transcendent to the things that we are measuring in our human systems. And that enormous deficit, if you want to talk about it in familiar economic language, the enormous deficit between what we're paying attention to and what we have externalized, the golden shadow, if you will, that which we have yet to render visible. Oh, that is a very heavy shadow, my friends. Before we try to stitch that one back on, I want to thank all of the folks who have subscribed and left a five-star rating for this show on iTunes. You're the best. You're the best. You're doing something that immeasurably helps, really, because I don't have access to the algorithm, but I know it does help this show get into the ears of new listeners who can huddle with us in the Facebook discussion group and or on Patreon in the conversation threads there. And the more I can do to facilitate those conversations, the better. I mean, that's basically what this is all about. It's just encouraging a good gab about the futures we want to live in. Anyway, those of you who have been sharing this show with your friends or talking about it, thank you. Very swiftly approaching my goal on Patreon, at which point I will release an ebook of the insane coloring book I have been working on. 
my friends. Enjoy this awesome conversation with Sophia Rockland, Master of Ecological Economics, collaborator on the Environmental Justice Atlas, and many other things. An absolutely wonderful person whom I'm glad to be able to commit to the Digital Museum and render possibly one day a fossil. could just get rolling i don't know like i yeah. I, I always record the lead in but in introspection if you ask someone why they're doing something why they feel that way it tends to make them more introspective which tends to exaggerate or like exacerbate depression whereas if you ask somebody what they're feeling then it increases their mindfulness of like the sensations in their body and it tends to lead out of depression and into curiosity you know, Spanish has this innate, maybe it's just a happier world, the Spanish world, hmm. because they're, they're asking people for what, you know, like what mm-hmm. it's, it's like the what is emphasized and the, the, the why doesn't really even, it's not really like mm-hmm. a separate question. I don't know. Yeah. Could be wrong. Yeah. No, I, it's, it's been really interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by, um, spells, aka language, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I, I just spent two years living in Spain, in Barcelona, and I was learning Spanish there. Um, and the way that kind of spells are cast and language is spoken there, uh, they, yeah, they have five tenses, five time tenses, right? Versus us, which are quite limited, but we have a much more robust adjectival vocabulary. So we use a lot more specific kind of words, but in terms of where we locate ourselves temporally, we're very kind of poor in relation to romantic languages, which I think is very interesting and telling of. <laughs> oh, shit. You got you to gotta explain the two tenses that we don't use in English, please. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oof. I may have to get back to you on that one, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh-huh. Like, pensaba, I was thinking, um, or like, iba, I was going to. I, 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 can't, I can't perfectly translate it for you, okay. but... My understanding is that when I've been speaking Spanish with people, it's been much more specific in terms of like, I was doing something continually in the past, right? It's not like it happened or it was happening. It was like, while it was happening in the past. Um, yeah. yeah, but don't take my word for that. <laughs> I think I have, I think I have a lot of hypothetical <laughs> tenses that sort of show up in the structure of my language, hmm. you know, like it's just that. There are ways that we find around these limitations as English speakers, I think, that are just awkward and cumbersome and awful. But, you know, they exist. So, okay, so (laughs) off to a great start because you're totally right. English has profoundly and horribly limited my ability to locate myself in time. Yeah. And, um, but to locate ourselves in time, we are recording this the week that the Catalan are articulating a desire to leave. Yeah. So as somebody who just got back into the States from your time in Barcelona, like how, what is, what are your th- thoughts on Catalonian independence? Independence. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, to be honest, I've kind of tried to remain um, like, 
intentionally ambivalent about it because I really wanted to be kind of permeable and open to both conversations. Um, my, I've been, I was there for two years, so I kind of saw this like crescendo of the independence um, conversation occurring. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, what I've seen is that it, in the streets, um, Catalan independence feels ubiquitous. You know, you feel like a lot of Catalan flags are hanging out outside of windows, you know, flown by old people and young anarchists alike, the, the, the conservative and the popular. And I mean, everybody, people from all walks of life in Catalonia um, do feel a sort of desire to autonomy be autonomously be represented. And I think a big thing that people aren't talking about is actually what's happening with the taxation structures over there. So to the best of my knowledge, um, in País Vasco and the north of Spain, which is also sort of internally considered an autonomous region, um, the people there aren't necessarily like the, the way that the taxation structure works is that Rajoy, the prime minister, solicits for taxes. And then País Vasco, you know, inter- they, they create revenue and then they provision for their region and then send the rest back to the state, right? And then from there, the state distributes versus in Catalonia, where there remains this sort of what, what people in Catalonia that I've spoken with feel it's this sort of economic like slavery where they're working, they have to send all of their taxes to Spain, which then diffuses it from there. Um, if that makes any sense. So totally. what I heard, what I heard through the grapevine is that just two days before the referendum, uh, October 1st, um, Rajoy actually proposed or some of his economic advisors proposed to the Catalan people to go through with this sort of more autonomous economic taxation structure. Um, and the Catalan people said too little, too late, dude, we're going through mm. with it. So, uh, yeah, but it's quite heavy. And I think it's more than anything, it's awful that the EU hasn't formally like addressed this kind of blunt force fascism that you see happening there, you know, it's like, yeah. Domestic abuse. (laughs) You know, I, cause I, I bring this up because not only does listening to someone speak a romance language induce all sorts of like a web work of romantic thoughts around issues that I would not ordinarily consider romantic, like viewing everything within the structural metaphor of, Mm two nations coming together or two ecotopes, mm-hmm. you know, fusing at the, at the border. But also because the last time that you and I had a conversation in Oregon, yeah. Yeah. uh, it was very much infused with this sense of the agency of the land and also infusing our notions and our study and practice of economy mm-hmm. with some of this really like earthy grounded, uh, substantial, you know, actual like material yeah, reality. Yeah. And so, yeah. and so in light of the, like there being this like uh meso macro connection between any kind of power disparity and the way that two parties interact in that, in that space, whether they're humans or political entities i guess it would be cool to start the actual conversation about your work yeah yeah yeah. And like because i think <laughs> what you were what you've been studying is so so fascinating and i would just love to hear you talk about that for a little while and then we can loop it back around and make it all meta 
Yeah, yeah, I love meta. Let's meta it. Let's metabolize it. Um, yeah, so I guess I just finished a master's of science degree in something called ecological economics, um, which is in itself an interdisciplinary field, uh, which economy or economics should be. Um, so ecological economics is a field that kind of mixes together energy accounting, um, geography, history, and within that, and I'll get it, I hope to get into it later, there's this kind of field called political ecology, which I focus on a lot more. Um, but ecological economics is basically looking at the sort of the layer of material funds and flows that actually stimulate the economy that we most commonly speak about in the West. Um, so how much cement, how much gold, how much sand, et cetera, goes into kind of animating this uh, metabolized environment, a.k.a. human nature, right, cities uh, that we live in. So, yeah, so that's what I've been studying. And then within that, I've been studying um, sort of land rights and the expansion of uh, agro-industry in the Amazon and in Indonesia, um, specifically with palm oil. So this kind of very curious commodity that's on the rise. It's the number one most globally traded oil seed crop on Earth. Um, and I mean, I could go on forever about oil palm, but essentially, yeah. Well, go ahead because this was how, when I was reading Christian Chicago's <laughs> book, the Anthropocene mm-hmm. and like, this is, it's embarrassing for me to admit that it was only like a couple of years ago that I realized the planet wide ecological impact that palm oil specifically has mm-hmm. and how, so much, you know, cause I'd heard about, you know, rainforest being, uh, you know, deforested to make room for, you know, cattle grazing and that kind of stuff. But I had no idea. It just seems so bizarre. You know, there's these huge regions of tropical forest, like I'm a mat, you know, the, so much of the Indian ocean area, like Oceania and stuff. And then they're just replacing it with palm trees so like to your average suburban american like person it seems like six of one and a half a dozen of the other but there's an enormous ecological collapse going on there yeah at the yeah, same yeah, time yeah. I, I don't know yeah. i mean please please um say more about that so that i yeah. can shut my mouth and sound like less of a fool <laughs> no i mean listen i think this the, we're, we're all in a co-learning experience here and um yeah, I mean, for me, I decided the whole reason I'll just begin with why I why I, why I began to study palm oil or oil palm trees, they're called, um, is because I was living in the Ecuadorian Amazon with a small tribe called the Sequoia. Um, and I was studying plant medicine over there, actually, hallucinogens and psychotropic uh, kind of secrets out there. And um, I sort of had this moment of reckoning. You know, I think a lot of people right now, especially um, from maybe the <clears throat> new age culture, Burning Man culture, any sort of these kind of culture, countercultural movements have become really fascinated in shamanism. Um, and I think that, you know, when you actually start to go to the heart of where these people have traditionally practiced and learned the alchemy of these admixtures and all of this stuff, um, you realize that there's the it's really quite in uh, danger, like the literal land and the actual place where the, where the, where the work is being done. Um, so I was in uh, Ecuador with the Sequoia and it was, what was most fascinating to me was, you know, driving in or going in through the canoe. I would, I would see that on one side, you sort of had this old slash current paradigm of energy, Western energy movement, which is 
uh, gas, uh, petroleum extraction. You had these like fields of petroleum rigs endlessly. And then I saw on the other side, these kind of silent green deserts, right? Which are just endless hectares of palm trees. And for me, I didn't like really understand what it meant. But the thing about the palm oil tree is that, um, it's actually being used as a biofuel, right? Or as an agrofuel. So, it's not only used in food products or in industrial lubricants, although it is prevalent. It's it's in over fifty percent of shelved products in North America and Europe in supermarkets. So that's one. And the second part of that is that it's actually being kind of pushed forth by organizations like the World Bank and the UN, and they're kind of saying, you know, if we're going to be moving towards a new energy paradigm, we're going to call it the green energy paradigm. We're going to be using green fuels that are AKA oil palm trees. Um, right, so because they, those those are trees and therefore sequester carbon, so we look sure. great, right? That's, that's yeah. A uh, well, I mean, I, I we can talk about carbon uh, ecosystem services and carbon crediting. I actually have a very strong opinion against it. Um, let's but, let's put a pin in that and get back to that yeah, because I'm yeah, very yeah, curious. Yeah. Okay, go on. Um, yeah, so, so that, so that's how I arrived to understanding that palm oil specifically, um, is a fascinating, uh, plant that is kind of its consciousness and its, uh, its, um, impact is being felt widely around the world and will continue to be felt very widely around the world. And there's something that, I mean, I wish that people knew a little bit more about, which is this phenomenon, which is kind of very narrowly discussed in the academic community, but it, I think it should be frontlined more in major environmental movements. And these are called flex crops. So flexing, like flexibility. Um, and flex crops uh, is a kind of a term that's assigned to these plants that can be used for multiple outputs. So soy, maize, corn, or um, palm oil or palm, which can be used as a food, a fuel, or a feed. Um, and through advancements in biotechnology, the one input, the soy or the oil palm, can actually start outputting more multiple and diverse outputs which means that for international investors, they become incredibly lucrative business opportunities and, and, and kind of safe bets because they're sort of, if you're not investing in one market, you're investing in energy, you're investing in soaps, you're investing in you know candy, whatever it is. Um, so this flex crop phenomenon is sort of like the heart or the axis of where I think a lot of monocultures are going to be um, spreading from here on. Hmm. Yeah, so you get to you get to diversify your investment portfolio while keeping it in a single exactly. plant, which mm-hmm. is um, which is interesting. It's it's a weird thought because it seems like if you're doing that, then you're at, what you're actually doing is linking those markets even more intimately into the the success or failure of this this one genetic lineage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that doesn't that doesn't actually I mean that just sounds like more uh like short term full nonsense. Because I mean like <laughs> in terms of in terms of if you have your your feed and your your food and they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. One of them collapses, both of them will collapse. That's not actually mm-hmm. That's not actually a diversification of your portfolio. Right. Safe, but not sound. It's like, yeah, ah, definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, it's a very myopic decision that's being made out there. I think so. Yep. And yet, and yet, if we are going to look at how to turn this around, how to make the value of a a virgin rainforest or even Mm -hmm. just like, you know, second growth rainforest, Mm -hmm. you know, which would be like the silver to virgin rainforest gold, then that's like, yeah, we've got to make it visible to the economy. And this was what Schwagro was saying in in the Anthropocene, which was Mm -hmm. what, what you just brought up, which was starting to render the cycles, natural systems, you know, the water cycle, the carbon cycle, in terms of like outboard economic services that are being provided to us by nature. And he's like, I don't like this. He's like, I don't know a better way of going about this. He's like, I, uh-huh. I don't, I don't know how we can make the, the like emotionally dead, ostensibly value neutral economic machine learn to care about this stuff unless we put it in economic terms. But he's like, but that's still about us. That still carries over this modern axiom that humans and nature are separate and that these are, that this is stuff that's like, basically like we, we have to allow it to be quantified and, regulated in this way in order to allow it to remain wild, which is the primary mind fuck of the Anthropocene. It's yeah. like we have to actively conserve this thing in order for it to remain untouched. Therefore, it's, you know, it's where it doesn't really work. And so mm-hmm. I'm, and so carbon credits, oh, like, <laughs> so, or like, or like anything, I guess I'm, I'm curious if you, your critique is anything like uh, a, a sweeping critique that would include delegating a cryptocurrency to the Congolese people for rainforest rainforest stewardship so mm-hmm. that they can participate in the global market without decimating their natural resources in order to do so. Or yeah. like where, like, you know, what's, what are the, the like, I actually went to school for this shit thoughts on this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I didn't go to school for studying cryptocurrencies, but I have been studying a little bit. And before I get into the actual thing, I think a lot of the time people are kind of talking about this idea of like, right, delegating a cryptocurrency for to provide some sort of an ecosystem service for whatever, when in reality that could also exist within the economy that we have going already or in another structure, right? So I think a lot of the time people get a little bit gung-ho about the um, the potential of blockchain technology without really understanding that, like, you know, some of the fundamental, like, functions, like why, you know, it's it's an accounting database, right? It's not... So that's, so that's one thing. I mean, I think a lot of the time, too, people talk about, like, you know, can we put this on, like, land management? Let's manage our land with blockchain. I'm like, dude, you could do this with an Excel spreadsheet, right? 
So it just without overcomplicating things, I mean, for me, I've been, you know, the whole world around, and I, I would like to get back to the land rights, but I think right. the whole world around blockchain, I think, first of all, it's incredibly difficult and often inaccessible language for people to understand. And also it's a field that's developing so sort of exponentially that even trying to keep up with the learning curve as somebody who's not kind of an expert in fintech and financial technology is always going to be talking like they don't really know, you know, and I think that um, I, I mean, I would be interested in sort of heralding a paradigm where we talk more like openly about what we don't know about blockchain rather than like what we do, like, well, I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. I see I'm gonna do this and that. And I think that a lot of the time we're not really like understanding it in like a like a systems view. Um, Very but then, true. Totally on a tangent. Ecosystem services. Yeah. Ecosystem services, man. So so basically, yeah, this whole idea of commodifying isolated elements in an ecosystem started in the 1980s. Um, and this, this term we called PES, Payments for Ecosystem Services, was basically a scientific, economic, environmental initiative to kind of create value. Uh, in, in like a value-based initiatives or incentives to to fund to fuel conservation, right? Um, but I kind of take it's not necessarily the most pragmatic, but I think it's more of a long-term perspective. It's a more philosophical perspective where, it, like, yeah, if you are putting a price on valuing, you know, the hemlock tree versus the eucalyptus tree or something you're not understanding that a hemlock tree exists because it is fueled by you know like mushrooms and tree other trees and i mean you're you're completely abstracting it from its entire ecosystem so a friend of mine brett scott who writes a lot on um you know financial hacking and uh environmental issues on this matter he said something like you know, you have the, if you're trying to pay for an ecosystem service, it's like trying to isolate, it's like trying to put a price for your heart, right? Like, are you willing to sell it? If you're trying to isolate this one sort of thing, like, how far does that really go in the long term? Yeah, you can put a price on it, but mm, does it really make that much sense? Um, so, yeah, I think it's quite problematic that we're doing it. What's the alternative? What's the alternative? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, the alternative would be kind of a hybrid, like doing it, but frontlining the understandings that of the implications of what you're doing, Mm. if that makes sense. So like frontlining the issues in this conversation. Um, But honestly, I I don't have an implication, but I'm sorry, another, um, an alternative, but I think just because I don't have an alternative doesn't mean that you should just go forth with whatever you have, right? Um, and yeah. let's put it on the blockchain, yeah. and let's <laughs> and let's pretend yeah, like we know what we're doing, yeah. And like just like not allow dissent, yeah. And also understanding like who do these systems work for, right? Like when you're throwing something on a blockchain, like is it going to be? You know, like the Indian mango farmer who's actually running it, or is it? Or when you're talking about commodifying the river, like whose river is it? You know what I'm saying? And it's still mm-hmm. kind of fitting. It's kind of still sifting us into this 
Western hegemonic sort of environmental management paradigm that we're working. Oh with. shit! Management. Management. <laughs> you can't unhear that one. <laughs> no, no, it's in there forever. Well, and you know, it's like uh, William Irwin Thompson. I don't know if you're familiar with his stuff. I, I, I probably chewed your ear off about him the last time we spoke, but he is a planetary thinker. He's, he's somebody that, you know, worked with a lot of mystical planetary thinkers in his 40 years as the, the head of this post academic intellectual concert for the, the realization of planetary culture or something to that effect. The Lindisfarne Association. And, you know, there were people in this group like, Lynn Margulis and Stuart Brand, James Lovelock, and all you know, all these folks who are thinking about the next era of human society as an ecological era. Very specifically, a maturation of the immature or premature global mindset of the 20th century, where after World War II, we realize that the fallout from the bomb gets up into the atmosphere and drifts across the ocean and that you can't win a war anymore that like the weapons are too big the consequences are too vast everything's too interconnected now and so we entered you know he talks about this uh in his book evil in world order 1972 he's like basically what we have in this age that's emerging is two different responses to the understanding that we live on this planet. One of them is the mystical response, which is just that we're living, we're participating in this enormous organism that we can't fully understand. This sounds a lot like what you're sort of suggesting that there's a, there's a, well, we can put this forward, but we can put it forward provisionally. We can accept that ultimately it's a mysterious phenomenon you know that it remains open that our understanding of it is constantly evolving the other side of it is the technocratic management paradigm and like he really specifically says you know technocratic elitism versus the mystics is what's going to be the 21st century like that's that's where we are with this it's like it used to be the industrialist versus the artist Hmm. You know, but then the industrial world ate art and now there's paintings inside the bank, you know, yeah. and, and your band succeeds by getting into a car commercial. And yeah. You know. Yeah. And my question for you is where does cyber shamanism fit in there? Right. Like, is there some <sighs> sort of a, <laughs> I mean, right. Like that's, I mean, for me, that's what I see as the sort of the vesica, right? Like the intersecting point between what seems to be these two irreconcilable worlds of like mysticism and sort of essentialized romantic uh, somatic sort of encountering um you know in, in interacting with your environment versus this yeah management technocratic thing and so what, what do you think <laughs> well uh it's interesting that we're talking about the vesica pisces in between the irreconcilable opposites because mm-hmm. today as i'm sure you know Mm-hmm. Mars conjoins Venus under a full moon. So Ooh. you have, you I'm have that, Yang, the sun and the moon, the masculine and the feminine are here. It's a great time to take a look around and observe our environments and see where we find this reconciliation going on in our own souls. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answer. I think that it seems to me like, 
and this is what I find so fascinating about your your passion for this stuff is that it is a very high level like orbital view economic vast systems way of relating to something that is ultimately very much about our bodies the very like root of our existence our our sustenance our heart our relationship with the land and then on the other end of it it seems like as we technologize nature we naturalize technology so mm-hmm. like i think that the fruit of contemplating the anthropocene and contemplating what you know an ecology and economics looks like as a single it's like astronomy and astrology it's like that really that really should be one field you know economics and ecology should be one thing kind yeah. of right uh, well of course yeah so like the degree program name is just sort of weird the fact that we still have to talk about these things as two things right. uh, <laughs> you know i think ultimately hopefully having to use the word techno shamanism or cyber shamanism just like disappears into redundancy or irrelevance mm. you know that like yeah. like richard doyle talks about there being like you're saying about how do we quantify a particular tree is like yeah. if we try to extract the active psychedelic chemical from some mm-hmm. you know from mimosa bark mm-hmm. then we have to do so by surrounding our scientist with an ecosystem of laboratory equipment uh-huh and uh-huh. and it's just it's just a dumb ecosystem compared to the smart ecosystem that that within which the plant natively uh, incarnates or whatever you know it's like so so we're 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 back where we started except we're in an artificial environment or an environment where we're participating more actively. What are your thoughts? I mean, that's an interesting thought. I I agree with you. But then if you start to like push to like the contours of this idea, like you're extracting an active compound in the mimosa bark in this sort of what you call like artificial or unnatural environment. I think that that's even a concept that we have to kind of overlook and understanding this, like this dichotomy between human and nature is where we started getting a lot of our problems to begin with, you know? And I really like this idea of something called social metabolism, which is this idea that humans, if we do kind of think that we are natural, I personally think that like, I mean, I'm, I'm from, I'm of this planet. This is my star here like if not 100 you know. percent organic possibly gmo but definitely <laughs> I'm <a> little, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah soon to be borg um but no i think i think you know like if we're we're, we're, st- we're understanding this idea that humans metabolize our environment right so i'm in this room and around me is a wall made with paint which is metabolized x y and z you know and even though we do kind of live in this infinitely abstracted relationship with these primary elements we still are these like great wizards and these great alchemists that are creating these urban environments that we live in but i really like the example of like you know opening a opening the tap in a water in of you know the, a water tap in the city and then 
just seeing the water flow, right? And then following it back, like through the tubes, down into the reservoir, back into the river and up the mountain, right? And even integrating that system's view, I feel like is incredibly healthy and sensible and rationable and palatable to the most kind of technocratic genius that you're going to be finding in the office, right? And I think that even then kind of that very conscious meditation of demetabolizing our environment will help us understand the impact of how much we metabolize and when we metabolize and why we metabolize. And, yeah. It reminds me of Big Mind. If you're, hmm. So, uh, Ganpo Roshi, who is a, an American Zen master living in Salt Lake City, came up with this. Real interesting dude. He's the, he's the lineage holder for the oldest Zen lineage in the U.S., the White Plum lineage, but he's also this like Jewish motorcycle j- jacket wearing kind of like cool dude. It's 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 strange, but also totally in keeping with Zen's love for personal idiosyncrasy. And he takes it and he drills it down and backwards into regarding the self as a multitude. So he he's done this thing with Zen and voice dialogue therapy where he carries an audience through a conversation with different aspects of like different subroutines of their own mind, like modules, you know. So, you know, inside Sophia, there is the critic, the skeptic, the defender, the vulnerable child, like all of these voices that are there as strategies for in one way or another negotiating that self-other boundary, right? But once you get through, you know, a little bit of familiarity, like once you get yourself comfortable with the practice of switching from this perspective to another perspective and asking each one for its input, because every one of them has some ecological function within the, the greater self and taking them all as sort of perfect in their own right and complete in their own right, even the damaged self and like these parts that are, you know, almost like Christ-like in their eternal perfect woundedness, right? Mm. Then you realize that they've all, none of them are shouting for your attention. And suddenly you notice that there are these other subtler voices around, which include like, he has to speak to big mind and big heart. Like those are the, the big ones. And big mind, the question that he, I've, I've, gone through this process with a a facilitator a few times and the process always gets to this question of like how big are you like you're sitting there appreciating your original mind you know it's like it contains everything or does it you know ask your own big mind and and you're like how big are you and everybody invariably laughs because you're feeling out to the edge of it and you don't find the edge right like yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> like this is phenomenologically true. This is, I just want to like make it clear. This isn't like an intellectual abstraction or an, like just an exercise for people. Like if you really feel to the end of your awareness, it's really just the end of your ability to pay attention to, mm-hmm. it, you know, and yeah. I, think I hear that in what you're saying <clears throat> about like demetabolizing all of this stuff that you've sort of like plastered. Literally, we've plastered ourselves away from all this stuff. And we're like, oh, no, yeah. no, no, those walls are full of rats. Those rats are exhaling and I'm inhaling their exhalations. 
I mean, yeah, totally. And I think, oh God, I, mean, I could, I could talk endlessly about the, like the exploring the contours of the self. And I think that there I are many you different, <laughs> I mean, I think there are many different, um, disciplines and vocabularies that you could do it with, but one that I'm really interested in, and I would love to hear your perspective on is, um, talking about scale, right? Like, it's inevitable that like, okay, you know, at this, at this point in time, I have this ego and I'm relatively familiar with how I operate in the world. Like I can, you know, I can have a DMT induced experience and start to kind of transcend my boundaries of self, but in my day-to-day life and in most of the day-to-day life that I'm with the people that I'm with, we have our own localized consciousness and our own localized awareness. And um, from there, then I start to think about like how much autonomy and agency do you have over your environment around you, right? Like what can you do around you? And then I think specifically with regards to activism and what I've been working with, um, in this project called the Environmental Justice Atlas, um, we're kind of frontlining these ideas of scale, right? So understanding, like, when you're understanding global ecological crises unfolding in all sorts of corners of the world, but mostly on what we call these commodity frontiers, which are based in the so-called global south, right? These really resource-rich areas. Um, where do you locate yourself in this battle, they're not in this battle, in this in this unfolding human saga. Like, where am I? I'm in New York, but my you know garbage is here, and my you know this this spit, the toothpaste that I spit into the sink this morning is there. Like, it's all it's all I'm I'm everywhere, right? Um, and where do you, where where do you put yourself? Where do you stand with this? Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that the Atlas is a little bit more like orthodox in this respect. It's not necessarily talking about like, you know, scaling and environmentalism, but the Atlas is a database um, of all reported environmental justice conflicts happening around the world. Um, EJAtlas.org, environmentaljusticeatlas.org. Um, and what the team is doing there is we're writing basically uh, all of these cases of people who feel that, you know, in the throes of capitalist extractivism or in dumping, um, they're receiving an unequal burden and they're not receiving a, a proportionate benefit to these projects. Um, so for me, then I focus on the, my commodity of the moment is palm oil, but there are also issues around nuclear waste, even like flower cutting, you know what I mean? The flower industry, there are all of these little facets that we're not, you know, really focusing on. Um, so yeah, in terms of scaling and like locating oneself, I think that that's a really interesting project to check out the Atlas and then see where you resonate, where you locate, where, you know, you feel water I dig or like, you know, firewood I dig or whatever it is. And then just kind of creating a kinship and a deep recognition and rapport with that one natural element and its story. Mm. So this, this reminds me of, uh, Dieta. Uh-huh. And like this notion of just taking a week to acquaint yourself with rose mm. or to acquaint yourself with holy basil or whatever the thing. I, you said you did some, some work in that space yeah. with the sequoia. And I'm, I'm curious in what way that connection has made itself manifest in like the way that you're, you're thinking about these issues and cause you're clearly on sort of like an intellectual dieta with 
palm oil. <laughs> dieta, I guess it's it's accented. Dieta. But dieta, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm actually I'm going back. I'm 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 just kind of transitioning out of this palm oil, and I'm actually helping my friend Daniel Pinchbeck write a book on ayahuasca. Oh, right? that guy! Yeah, yeah, that I, guy. Yeah, that, that, I know that, that guy. That guy. <laughs> that amazing psychonaut. Yeah, um, yeah. So right right now we're in the we're doing primary. I mean, we're doing preliminary research, and we both come from a lot of personal experience um, using the ayahuasca medicine or yahe, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, what I'm bringing right now is, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of doing like a 360 right now. I started with this sort of interest in altered states of consciousness from a young age when I was like 14, 15 years old. Um, I was an actor when I was a kid and I was always interested in like transcendence, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, that and was my then, first experience of transcendence was in acting class. Yeah, of course. Totally. I mean, that, that, yeah. There's like a threshold between, you know, between the performance and the... It's incredible. Um, Blacking out and waking up five minutes later and everyone's clapping and you're like, <laughs> what happened? Or not. <laughs> yeah, or just staring at you like someone died. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but the blacking out is the <laughs> is what we're in it for. There's blood uh, everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, so altered states of consciousness, my favorite conversation, and probably yours too. Um, what I'm what I'm learning from it is that you know, so I I, w- I came to the jungle, and well, first I came to the jungle via like this kind of neo-shamanic urban initiation. I, the first time I drank ayahuasca was in a cold squat in Long Island City <laughs> in, like, in 2010 or something. And um, and then somehow I made it to the jungle over there. And then it was at that moment there that I realized I'm never going to be a shaman. Or maybe I'll be a shaman, but is that the best thing to do for the world right now? And then I start to realize when you actually meet the elders and when you, you see the land, you realize that these people have a rapport with their environment that I never will have. And I don't need to have because I have my own New York City and that's my environment and I love it too. But what can I offer? What services can I offer? And that's where I transitioned from kind of studying religion and anthropology and plant medicine, ethnopharmacology, all of those things into kind of hunkering down and saying, shit, I'm going to study land rights. I'm going to study economics. I'm going to study these things that I've traditionally kind of veered away from because I felt, you know, we're too, uh, like masculine and mainstream or whatever. But I realized that those are the tools that I have at my disposal and that's where I can make the most movement. Um, and now coming back to this ayahuasca project today, um, I'm really interested in frontlining conversations about like the political economy of psychedelics and actually where do we source our hallucinogens from, um, or any of our kind of, you know, any, any of our alt, I mean, we, we need to start to, that's the thing. I feel like there's this huge kind of cognitive dissonance happening between people who are, you know, taking these psychedelics, but it's happening in a vacuum. And if we're really going to deeply do the work, we have to go to the source. And if we really appreciate that work, we have to start defending those jungles and those people, you know, and I feel like, where's that conversation? We need the Starbucks of tripping to popularize the fair trade 5-MeO-DMT. Sourced from captive bred toads. Yeah, got the, yeah, yeah, it's like let's um, 
I mean, I, I sort of joke, but I also like uh, when I was at the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors last fall, I met this guy, uh, Yakov Travis, who's actually writing a novel about someone who, who gets through to Starbucks and the, the goddess, the typhonic Starbucks <laughs> goddess that has been a, two, a two tailed mermaid. Yeah. Yes. She's been, um, neutered basically or you know like neutralized sexually in the evolution of the starbucks logo you know like she never you don't see her cleft or anything anymore and (laughs) and um you know in in this novel someone gets through to starbucks and starbucks begins distributing some sort of mind-altering tonic or potion or something if we could just get their distribution chain to take up this this cause, you look at you know like folks like David Bronner, for example. Mm-hmm. I just love that he's cosmic engagement officer of this company. <laughs> that he 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 didn't just inherit the wealth, but he's like, all right, how can I like do responsible things with this? And the question in our age is like, with your decision to move into the study of these at least in recent tradition, these sort of like masculine mm-hmm. discussions, there is also a, a sort of a feminine while that can be executed by recognizing the role of these multinational corporations as the platform for change. It's it's like, it's so clearly the fulcrum has shifted, you know, the, the weight is in business so much more than it is in politics like business is is dragging politics and so how do we even get this conversation happening when we're not even allowed to like regulate or certify you know you know it's like certified organic Mm, yeah but you can't have certified you can you can have certified organic bud now in some states Mm -hmm. you know but you can't you can't really do that with I don't know, like, let's say just cocaine. Like, let's imagine in, you know, in a world where, like, these charges, these polarities have truly been negotiated. And you can get cruelty-free, totally, you know, I mean, you say what you will about the medical benefits of it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, like, let's imagine a world with cruelty-free, fair trade cocaine. Like, what's it going to take for us to get from here to there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this, yeah, that's a great question. And that totally circles then back to this idea of, like, what is the price of commodifying and kind of regulating these substances and these things that we're interacting with? But something I heard once that I love um, is this idea, you know, especially with the cannabis trade being increasingly sort of formalized, right? I heard this guy say, um, capitalism will not transform cannabis. Cannabis will transform capitalism. Let's hope. Right. I mean, that's the best we can do. And I feel the same about ayahuasca and I feel the same about, you know, any of these hallucinogenic, you know, plant medicines that are really beginning to become quite prevalent in our in our interest right now. And I think that it is going to increase and that's inevitable. Right. Um, I'm personally against the hard lined formalization of it. Because I think that we're what happens in this is we, we we remove all of the risk from the experience, right? Which is the which is which is what kind of commodification is in and of itself. It's like you're taking what you want, right, and then you're removing what you don't want. Christmas tree farms are freaky to look at. <laughs> <laughs> Say more. 
they're they're freaky. I mean, it's rose. We had lots of this stuff actually in Florida. Growing up in mm-hmm. in Florida, there's lots of plantations, you know, of various trees. And you just see. I didn't get it as a kid. I was like, what What's wrong with that forest? Like you just see like row after row, uh-huh. and there's no presence under them. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of being facetious, but the fact of it is that there's a reason celebrity Texan Willie Nelson thinks that regulating cannabis is a bad idea like actively says let's let's decriminalize this but let's not try to like template some new matrix of nonsense on top of it because you'll lose all sorts of things with that you know i mean for every just to talk about cannabis like it can go well relatively like it did in colorado or it can go relatively badly like it did in washington and very few people Mm -hmm. talk about what a disaster the Washington legalization process has been for independent farmers and for people that were not big money coming in from out of state to like prey upon this. Again, yeah. it's like, like you said, it's, <clears throat> it's extractive. Yeah. Oh, here's a yeah. place that we can grow weed. Excellent. Excellent. Conference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I don't know. I, I, I tend to have a soft spot for these kind of clandestine economies and you have these sort of, the hackers and the pirates and the shamans. I think that it's yin yang, you know, and if we try to put everything on the one accounting book, like this is a monoculture. That's another monoculture, right? You're creating an economic monoculture by increasingly commodifying everything you possibly can. Um, and I think that's something specifically interesting that's unique to ayahuasca um, and psychedelics in general and not cannabis is that psychedelics um, are, they they kind of defy commodification in that you can have unpredictable and very harrowing effects. And that's the beautiful thing about psychedelics is that as long as I think I'll be alive, I'm not going to be able to buy an LSD mint at a store because every experience that somebody will have is going to be different. And that that kind of defies the act of regulation itself. Mm -hmm. So I think that in this strange frontier of, attempting to and entertaining the idea of commodifying psychedelics, we're really going to learn a lot about the, the actual nature of commodification itself, right? Like, like, what are the limits? Can we actually go that far? And I think, I think more interesting stories are on its way. <laughs> what about, so this, is this, is this a, a Sophia thing or is this a, I lived in Barcelona for two years thing? Because, I mean, everything I hear about the continental mentality is that there's a lot more of a bumper zone between what's on the books and what's not on the books. You know, like podcaster Chris Ryan talks about, you know, he's living 20 years in Barcelona and how it'll say no parking and there'll be like 20 motorcycles next to the no parking sign (laughs) and he'll find a cop and he asks the cop and the cop's like, well... Technically, it's illegal, but we're not gonna we're not gonna write you a ticket unless we have some reason to write you a ticket. You know, it's like it's yeah. just they're not out to like wrap your knuckles with the ruler unless they really have a reason to do that. And it seems like that's that's something that I experienced uh, at the festival where we met at Boom mm-hmm. Festival, where it's mm-hmm. like you know they they really when they had the 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 panel interview with all the festival producers and the guy asked about the undercover cops at the festival. And he's like, look, man, like we're working with them. 
we're not we're not going to lie to you. We're not going to keep them out of the. We're not going to try and screen everyone and like keep them out yeah. and like give them a hard time. But they have no reason to give you a hard time. Yeah, like, wherever you're from, like, what are you worried about? You're in a place where people are just looking out for each other and trying to make sure everyone's having fun in a safe way. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's also interesting that the, the, there was this level of transparency of at Boom. I worked at Ca- I work at Cosmicare at Boom, so it's the oh, psychedelic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the for those of you who don't know Cosmicare, and in also similar to like Zendo initiatives, it's this kind of psychedelic harm reduction project, um, which provides a safe space for people who are going through kind of difficult um, drug induced experiences to have space to go through that, and instead of rather like suppressing it or just getting over it actually giving that moment integrity and traveling through it right and considering that an initiation an initiation of itself so yes we're in this like big pop-up initiation camp with a lot of people who you know go through this thing but it's really beautiful yeah i think the so anyway so yeah i mean that that's an example to me where like the formalization or the integration into the spotlight right because cosmic care is kind of run by um the 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 catholic university of porto um so in in conjunction with it's not it's i think it's a it's a little spore from that so that's an example where it's really beautiful um yeah (laughs) so i mean is that you talk about the yin yang of like Mm -hmm. the the pirates like you've got the empire and you've got the the pirate utopia yeah. You know, and is that <laughs> I don't know about the utopia, but well, I mean, I'm like Hakeem Bey talks about the temporary autonomous uh, yeah. zone. You know, the sure, pirate sure. utopia, like it doesn't last. Yeah. It's like you've got your booty from the last raid, and like maybe you can coast on that for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, we're almost about to talk about anarchism. <laughs> can, can we go there? Yeah, the political, Please, yeah, the ontological anarchism, because that's because I yeah. think that that's sort of at the heart of this, right? Yeah, is that yeah. all of the stuff that you're saying is like, well, how how much can we commodify it? How much can we superimpose this paradigm onto the wilderness that is the reality of our situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, I, I identify very strongly since living in Catalonia as an anarchist. Um, and people kind of, especially in the U.S., I think people's hair, you know, it's like pet, petting them backwards or something. It's kind of uncomfortable to hear because it's very, okay, right, because it, it like lacks a very clear definition for a lot of people. Like for Occupy, people were saying, oh, like they didn't get it done. Like they didn't finish the project. They didn't. What is their goal? You know what I mean? And I think from my understanding of anarchism is that it's inherently a process and it's inherently autonomous. It's, it's inherently dynamic and fluid and happening. And so when I talk about pirate economies or hackers or any, you know, or shamans or any of these guys, they're actually, you know, anarchists in their own right, in the sense that, yeah, they're not attempting to sort of become the usurpers of mainstream economic paradigm, but they create breathing room for difference, which is the most important thing I think that we need when we're in a world that's increasingly becoming the frontiers of monocultures, monocultures of the mind, monocultures of crops, monocultures of economic systems, you know? So I think that these guys are actually the unsung heroes of, of our world right now. Yeah. So I had this revelation. I was at the (laughs) eclipse festival. It was right after the eclipse. And my, my friends and I went to, the sun temple it was right next to the first nations camp and they had this huge circle of of people that were dancing 
uh, I guess clockwise, you know, and then inside the circle was this other guy dancing counterclockwise. And my buddy pointed and he's like, that's the Hayoka. That's the trickster of this tribe. I guarantee you. He's like, they always, they always go against the grain. They're always petting Mm -hmm. people backwards, Mm -hmm. you know, on purpose. Because if your fur is all going in the same direction, that's a monoculture, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was like, a little sketchy too, because he was he was taking a video of everyone in the circle, and I was like, if I were a little more paranoid, I'd be like, that guy's a CIA agent. Like he's he's like standing. <laughs> You're not the, paranoid. <laughs> he's got the he's got the perfect pose for this. Like he's the trickster, so he can kind of do whatever he wants and get away with it. That's the you know you look at the larger culture. That's the accusation. Uh, a lot of people like Tim Leary, you know, like oh the the best place to hide is right there in public. But anyway, setting that completely aside, the point is that. I wrote down this in in my notebook on that day that to like watching him go in that circle to complete things is to uncomplete them to complete things is to uncomplete things, you know, because that circle Mm -hmm. needs that guy going in the opposite direction. It's like the, the tooth of the gear that allows it to allows it to rotate in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, and that if it's all, if it's all swirling in one direction, like water doesn't work that way. Like if you just have a sphere full of water and you twist it, then that water will twist against itself and create a counter rotation. It just happens. So, yeah. I don't know. It's beautiful. I love that. To complete things is to uncomplete things. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think this, yeah, like the Hayoka is also like the original supervisor right the Hayoka lives on the mountain like on the side of the tribe looking over things and with the petting of the animal like the kind of the unidirectional fur (laughs) this one's gonna stay with me I'm gonna be petting a tiger in my sleep tonight (laughs) um like you also understanding that this unity is often sort of front like encouraged to create efficiency and this so right so like and we put such a premium on efficiency in our culture. So when this Hayoka does start going counterclockwise in the back, he's crea- he's making things inefficient. And that's really beautiful medicine right now, I think. I mean, in healthy doses, I guess, in the right place. <laughs> Don't take my word for it. But do you know what I'm saying? It's I like, totally yeah. do. And actually, yeah. <laughs> you, you created a, a space for which... I can, I would like to ask as much as I have like questions for you about harm reduction and whether there can even be counterculture in a planetary setup. Cause it's all one ecosystem, right? So it's like things can define themselves in opposition to other things, but ultimately that's anabolic steroids, catabolic steroids operating within a metabolic hmm. system that is all of a, a piece. But since you're talking about petting a tiger and creating inefficiency and and intentionally encouraging waste and mess and confusion as part of the recombinant solution to the complications of complexity, right? It's like sex er- emerges. I told you it was going to get meta. <laughs> right. Sex emerges out of the confluence of ecological conditions whereby multiplication generates more solutions than addition. You know, you're going to get more Mm -hmm. new types of creature faster 
if you allow them to exchange the DNA horizontally than you are if you're just waiting for mutations to happen in these siloed verticals, to use an economic term. Very right? nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, that's why people look for vertical integration in economics. And that's why we mm-hmm. people look for horizontal integration in the bedroom. So the... <laughs> The question is, while we're, while we're talking about the influence of European philosophy and, and culture on your political, economic, and ecological views, I am super fucking curious to know more about your time at Tamara. Oh, yeah. Because, okay, so uh, I, episode 17 with Tibet Sprague, who oh, I know Tibet. you know. Yeah, yeah I yeah, met yeah. you two around the same time at Boom, and I think both okay, of you were cool. staying at, at Tamara at the time. Yep. And I know Daniel Pinchbeck's been out to Tamara, and I, I tried yep. and couldn't make it because I couldn't speak Portuguese well enough to the taxi guy. Um, <laughs> but they have this whole philosophy about love without fear. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot lately about, like, even the term polyamory annoys the shit out of me for a number of reasons. We don't even need to go there. But, like, this idea of allowing love and intimacy to be messy, open, process-based, undefined, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. we get to this point, and I've been, like, really feeling it today specifically because of the astrological environment right yes, but there's like yes. this moment it's like it's an apotheosis it's a it's a zenith it's a completion <laughs> but it's also just one more fucking day right and then then mars and venus and the sun and the moon they all they like you know move out of their perfect alignments they are probably already did you know and <laughs> And yeah. then we're all like hanging out in our cosmic post-coital cosmic ripple, yeah. Blues, you know. Was it good for you? Oh, you know, like I was, a- I wasn't asking that question five minutes ago. I hadn't retreated into the into language verse five yeah. minutes ago. So I guess I'm just, I'm just saying, like, you've been there on site and like witnessed firsthand a human community that allows for this mess, not just in their relationship with their their biotope. Not just in the way that they they relate to the land, but in the way they relate to one another as human beings. Mm-hmm. And I am super curious about what what inspiration that's been for you, or what effect that's had on you. And oh my you gosh, think? yeah. I mean, poof, there's so many lessons that come out of uh, having visited Tamara for me, and I hope to go back one of these days. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for, for I think something that's the, the most kind of jarring thing that happens for somebody like myself, who's been conditioned to have these sort of deterministic relationships and definitions and all that stuff as, um, you know, that you, you can, you can hold space for this chaos, but you need community to do so. So I've, you know, if you try to translate these kind of open relationship or love without fear relationships in a city, I find that they don't work as well. Or they, you know, because you don't have the same kind of context to support um, the the variables, the, the, the waves of eros that come over you, right? So I guess the idea is basically like, for example, if I'm at Tamara and I fancy someone um, or I'm at Tamara and I have an issue with them, I have an elder or I have a friend with whom I can say, hey, like, can you talk to this person for me? 
or hey, can you check in with that person? And you, we can have all of these people working as intermediaries, and we have these kind of like synapses and networks of people that are communicating messages throughout a network, a complete system, which is what allows for this kind of um, this openness of relationships that happens. And I and when you try to translate that into um, an ecosystem like New York City or San Francisco or anything like that, it gets a little dicey. Um, so community is, yeah. So wait, you actually like pass a note through the elder sort of like, that you, 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 yeah, you sure could. Like, there's, I, there's, I fancy so-and-so yeah. and they're like, don't fancy them. <laughs> I have bad news bears. There's a trash no, compactor. No. <laughs> yeah. You're like, man, this is a human. No, no. I mean, we've love for all sorts of animals over there, but Oh, I mean, let me, let remind me to talk about the birds in a second. But, um, yeah, I mean, at Tamara, there's like kind of like an eating space, a lounging space, a dancing space, and there's a table there. And then on certain evenings, there'll be somebody who's standing there and offering like a messenger service. So kind of somebody that can, that's offering to say like, Hey, if you don't want to have this conversation yet, or you would like to kind of relay this feeling in a different way, um, I'm here to help you. Or that person offers themselves as just a mediator. So you could have person A and person B and then mediator kind of holding space for that conversation to take place, which is so amazing. Just so amazing. That is the cosmic opposite of Tinder. Yeah. <laughs> It's like the precise negative image of how we're using technology to di- to disintermediate at the same time well, that we intermediate, right? Like we've taken that person in the middle out because it's more convenient, supposedly, but it's actually like yeah, you can I only you shuffle totally the mess around. I mean, I almost agree with you, but it's also in the sense that robots are programmed, right? These mm-hmm. these technologies are programmed. So how you're being mediated is, is actually your mediation between swiping left and right or you, my interaction with you or whatever it may be is actually written. It's coded by the literati of the technosphere. Right. So it's not a totally apolitical thing that's happening. Um, Definitely not, but it is... It's like the way that we've sterilized so many other parts of our existence. You know, we've like, we've tried to make the process of potential partner review this like efficient, you know, reliable, easily commodified thing. And in doing that, we've actually just repressed the uncomfortable shadow of the messiness of this connection so mm-hmm. that it ends up on the back end instead of up front in a, in a conversation where you're like talking with a mediator it ends up being this thing where like you know you have a lot of potentially anyway awkward dates with people that go nowhere because you're basing it you know you've like valved it down to just what you can know about a person that fits on the screen and like you can react to in a second mm-hmm. you know so so yeah like the the mess never goes away it's just redistributed i guess is what i'm saying yeah yeah and yeah like totally actually kind of shitty ways yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and i also think that like for example there's such a there's such a um, like the whole 
allure of these things is that you're taking love into your, you're taking your romance into your own hands, quite literally, right? But maybe that's not what partnership is about, you know? I mean, for me, I would actually, I kind of love the unsolicited advice that I get from my friends and my family about how, who they think I might be good with, right? And that's how I think partnership has classically worked for a very long time. And then when you start to use these technologies that say, oh, it's all up to you, you may be looking for what you think you want, but it may not be necessarily like perceiving yourself as holistically as others might. Um, you know, that's not to like advocate for arranged marriages per se, but yeah, so that's what's so beautiful about, I mean, <laughs> episode, next episode, but, but, uh, yeah, but so anyway, so I mean, being in Tamara, for example, people have eyes out for you, you know, they're like, you guys might have a connection and not in any sort of forceful way. And I think the most beautiful thing about Tamara is that it is, it feels, it's a very safe environment that all of this is happening. You have female elders that are kind of running, what I felt to be kind of running the show, holding a lot of space for these conversations to happen, um, which didn't, which to me made it feel that it wasn't just sort of like hyper-sexualized, accelerated, romantic kind of summer camp or something like that, which which it could be, but it's not at all. Um, and a lot of the time you're actually going there with like, you know, a lot of wounds and you're working through really heavy stuff, you know, but the fact that you have everybody there watching out for you is is what makes it such a transformational experience being there just that, <laughs> that, that thing about wounds i think that was like that actually i felt that going over to to boom and like just being on the beach with all of these people that like by and large the the, the vibe was didn't grow up with any kind of sexual trauma possibly wasn't even born in a hospital you know, know where my food comes from. Yeah. And I was my like, butt, oh, my. my butt sees the sun all the time. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. No tan line. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah. and, and like in these mica flecked glittering golden waters. And I was just like, you know, it's like the people that with the near death experience and they die and then they come back and they're like, oh, God, waking up in that hospital was the hardest thing I ever did. Like you know, coming back through U.S. Customs, where I had to declare my Portuguese honey, oh, and then like go through the whole agricultural inspection process of them looking at my honey, was like waking up in that hospital, you know, yeah. after after my near death experience with my like tan tan line less potential European self, and but <laughs> yeah, so this thing about do it yourself though. Mm-hmm like to touch on that and maybe this connects to birds i don't know oh yeah baby <laughs> yeah definitely connects to birds I, this is a huge theme in this podcast is the role of the elder you know and like mm-hmm. becoming elders like rebooting elderness you know rebooting the the community or the the economy of the value you know the perceived mm-hmm. cultural value of the elder after we've you know, basically created a dust bowl of senile dementia and elder care facilities oh gosh, yeah. and, you know, the, the, the worship of youth. And so like recognizing that we have to, we have to do this at the same time we've been brought up with exactly what you just said, which is the emphasis on, I don't want my mom to have any say in this. Like, I don't want, I don't mm-hmm, want my, mm-hmm. and, and yet what that looks like is you're saying, throw away all of 
your old country, you know, non-English speaking grandma's awesome folkloric health advice and get your hypochondriac ass on WebMD and figure this shit out yourself. You know, yeah. and I don't think that's advisable and therefore birds. Therefore birds. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm leaving that well, one in, in your lap can I, too. Can I tie them together? Can you cross this um, bridge? I mean, I to, to, maybe oh, here, here, we're going to do this. I'm going to, I want to talk about elders at Tamara because this was also something huge for me. Um, and specifically elders and also reconciling like feminine, um, feminine elders, right? Like feminine voices of authority in society mm. or not authority, but like of, What's the word? I don't, we don't even have the language for it anymore. I don't know, guidance or, or charisma. Yeah, yeah, like people, you know, people who, who we take seriously, whose whose wisdom is appreciated and, you know, taken, it's, it's weighty, it has gravitas, right? Mm. For me, it was really beautiful to be with women at Tamara who are glowing. And they're glowing because they're not constantly bombarded by these advertisements that are telling them that they need to rejuvenate their face with a cream or they need to rewind the time with the serum or something. That's really important, though. I mean, we all need to rejuvenate our face with creams. What kind of creams? (laughs) DMT cream. (laughs) That probably works. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, write that down. Um, (laughs) But... um, So an elder, an elder woman, Tamara, was telling me about um, communication with birds and communication with animals. And this um, kind of neatly ties into our conversation with casting spells and language and the English language specifically um, and how in our we don't we don't have we don't use gender pronouns for like animals or objects right so in french you would say or you know in spanish you'd say the sun el sol is masculine or you know la mesa the table is feminine so everything around you is given it's kind of like anthropomorphized by the gender value or the gender kind of identity that we give it right and what happens is that In the English language, we kind of refer to animals as it, right? Mm -hmm. So it is the dog is it. If I don't know it personally, and when you call something an it, there's a process of othering that happens. So if you and I are sitting here and a a very handsome golden retriever kind of rolls up, yeah, um, (laughs) I'll say, oh, look at it. It's so cute. Michael, what do you think of it, it, it? And I'm not saying, hey, golden retriever, how are you? You are so handsome, right? Like we completely kind of, we don't have any room in our language to, to, to have a participatory conversation with animals and trees and plants, all sorts of creatures around with us. Um, so what I noticed personally was in the process of communicating with animals, I had like a little dove sitting above me. I just said, Hey girl, like, what's up? You look hot. Or it happened with a horse. I had this amazing experience with a horse by just looking her in the eyes and saying, listen, I've never talked to your kind before. And I may be a little bad at this, maybe a little awkward, but I want to have a conversation and I'll tell you what happened, man. The horse like put, she put her big head against my torso and started nuzzling me. And then all of the horses around the ranch came and they came to the edges of their fences and they wanted to see what was going down. Cause we were having a real conversation. Um, that's like, 
life hack 101 from an from an elder woman at Tamara. Mm. Yo. <laughs> mm. So do you yeah. do that with birds then? Yeah. Is that the, all is, the time. That the, is that the the through line? That's the through line. That's the that's the that's the fish hook. <laughs> yeah. Hey, with mister. everybody. Hey, you. No, but you know, and I feel like because otherwise life gets really lonely. You know, if we're only hanging out with humans all the time. I mean, no offense, but I like. I'm all into diversity and stuff. And my appreciation for diversity goes beyond the human race. You know, I think I, I appreciate a diversity of seeds and a diversity of music and a diversity of all animate creatures. And I think that by kind of actively making a point of integrating them very simply into our conversations, that's huge. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the observation in some stand-up, I forget, that we have been... You know, we replaced the the actual oak runs and forest glens and all these things with neighborhoods called Oak Run and on you know the street is Forest Glen. <laughs> and then we, I, I talk about this shit all the time, but like the the scale between the actual Amazon rainforest is like tipping over to Amazon dot com. You know, oh, as gosh. as yeah. as like the library of genetic information we can actually witness the the weight or of the impact in the world of our ethereal human knowledge as yeah. and as, as it's like starting to outcompete the the poor apples the man. newosphere <laughs> eating the biosphere kind of right you know as like or uh-huh, that, sure, that tr- yeah. you know in the same way that eukaryotic life sort of took over on the on like a on that macro scale or the way that life took over from the lithosphere i don't know anyway last year i was visiting a friend in santa barbara and i was out on my friend's lawn playing guitar and this this silver thrush came out and was digging the harmonics of this particular thing like i noticed specifically that the the bird was like att- attracted to particular style of playing Mm-hmm. And I saw this bird every day. I was out there. And you always come up and be like, oh, oh, it's you playing guitar. And then I was in Albuquerque later that summer, uh, just in, outside Albuquerque in the desert. And I saw one. And I saw one right as uh, I had stopped to talk to my friend who was camping out there. And he was he was playing guitar. And I was like, and he said that. He's like, oh, yeah, this the silver thrush, they really love harmonics specifically like guitar harmonics huh i was like oh interesting so now i can like you know or and then i i brought this up with uh, this guy who had picked me up from the airport and was driving me to Moogfest mm-hmm. when i was going to give my talk on techno shamanism and he mm-hmm. was talking about how he would actually set he turned out to be this extraordinary pianist and you know just like you know how it is like these just just the driver, you know, whatever. And he's like probably in the top 5% most talented musicians. That's like not in this whole event. He's not even playing it. And, uh, he was talking about how he would set his, his keyboard up on the back patio of his house, right up against the woods and just like get into this jazz freestyle thing with like all the birds. And his wife would come out and be like, Oh, you're jamming with the, the all the birds again, <laughs> you know? And we yeah. lose, we lose that like coming back from Australia where I couldn't even count the number of different kinds of bird song I would hear waking well, up in, in outside Byron Bay. 
Hmm. So I come back here and I left my window open last night and it's like three, three kinds of birds, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And even then, do we know their songs? Yeah. Unfamiliar. Do we know their songs? There was a new yeah. one. I've lived here for three years and there was a new bird song I didn't recognize. And I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> Who's this guy? Who are you? Show me your passport. Yeah, where are you? <laughs> because the cat, and that's the, that's the fucking clinch on it, is that the cat, our neighbor's feral cats that they feed, chased all the birds out of our yard. Mm. You know? And that's mm. like, you gotta have this conversation with the, the neighbors. Hey, hey you. Hey first, you know, second person, subjective other. And then also with their cats, like, I acknowledge your right to exist, but you gotta get, you gotta stop breeding in my yard. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, that's a big, that's a very funny conversation that happens in conservation. You have like a deer, you have two deer in a territory, and one is indigenous, and one came in via settlers like 40 years ago or something like that. And then this new deer is starting to kill the indigenous deer, right? So everyone is saying like, Oh my God, like the deer isn't, the first deer is indigenous and it's his home. Like we have to do something. But you're like, dude, like the, but the other deer, the cat, right? Like what is he supposed to do? What is, what is his thing? So then you have all these forest rangers trying to go in and we call them the cult of wilderness, right? And they're trying to like preserve this pristine idea of like innate and essentialized kind of nature. Um, and yeah, all these like frontiers of like what, you know, who, who gets to say what? <laughs> so, Ayana Young, who was talking at the Eclipse Festival, and I just recorded a conversation with her because she's a mm-hmm. conservation ecologist and runs oh, amazing. this cool group, uh, Restoration Ecology. Uh, actually, it's, I guess, more accurate, ForTheWild.World, and has mm-hmm. a For The Wild podcast. And Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a great yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. So she, I listen to it all the time, yeah. <laughs> she was, quote unquote, just on the show. And mm-hmm. I asked her this question. I said, you know, what is your, you know, your thought on, you know, what are we trying to conserve? Because somebody asked me that after my talk Mm. at the Eclipse was like, so what does it mean to be a conservationist? Because again, like, you know, with this, you know, your relationship philosophy where you involve the community, you involve the community and you like actually listen to people's advice about who is and is not maybe a a good idea Mm -hmm. that that actually in a way is more traditionalist or conservative than the like 150 year old American idea of what marriage is, you know, yeah. we're calling traditional and we're calling it's a, you know, a conservation of, of marriage in that sense. And so I, you know, it's, again, it's like, well, the world that we've been living in for the last 12,000 years is pretty weird compared to like most of the history of earth ice caps that's weird not normal for earth to have ice caps so her answer was and i thought that this was really sane and integrative and you know not just retrogressive but also forward thinking was that Mm -hmm. it's basically ultimately about biodiversity and and like and that it's not it's not mm. about trying to like retouch a photograph of, you know, the Appalachian Mountains circa 1852. Yes. You know, it's about how can we make this ecosystem thrive, even if it means introducing new species, you know, like the way that there's some people that are, are trying to reintroduce elephants 
to North mm. America because they think that like this entire ecosystem, the prairie system was set up for like mastodons and mammoths and they're gone, you know? So like what we found when the Europeans got over here wasn't even wilderness anymore it was this weird disturbed ecosystem that was like in the process of becoming something new and they're like if we really want to like risk you know make america great again we're gonna need some fucking (laughs) mammoths right and if we can't have mammoths if we can't de-extinct the mammoth fast enough we can at least like prepare things with some african elephants even though african elephants have never lived in north america so that i felt was really that seems to strike the balance where we're looking at like what is not like what's it going to take to rebuild the original engine of this runaway truck that we're all in but like what's it going to take to like jerry rig some sort of new engine from like the parts from five different cars i see you know Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. the point the point is to have a working thing is it (laughs) (laughs) oh i don't know i I I like do you have an alternative i i I just pulled a little hayoka there yeah well (laughs) well you completed things by uncompleting them awesome thanks sophia thank you michael it was awesome yeah, as conversation intermediate as it is by the invisible code of invisible programmers will never meet, definitely less vital than having this conversation with you face to face. So yeah. maybe next time we can actually link up in person and yes, like I, I set will. some things on fire. Totally, we could do we could do a co a co bark. We could have like a barking orchestra of thought. Sometime next time we meet. <laughs> no latency. So you mentioned the ejatlas.org, Environmental Justice yeah. Atlas. Where else can people find you and find your stuff? Yeah, right now on Twitter, uh, at Sophia Rocklin, R-O-K-H-L-I-N. That's my handle. Um, and I'm building a website. I'm just getting out of the kind of like kind of hermetic academic sphere. So I'm just working on the publication thing. But follow me on Twitter and you'll, you'll see what's happening. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Any leftover sentiment you want to offer the unborn listeners of this show? Rainbow seeds for justice of all kinds. (laughs) That will date the show, I'm sure. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Hey, I really hope you liked that episode as much as I did. Oh man, I love doing this show. It is super fun, but it also takes a lot of time and energy. So if you care to show your support, please take a stop on by at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and consider leaving your credit card information and DNA, and I can get to work on my clone army. I appreciate it truly and authentically. One human being in this meta-industrial planetary machine lattice to another. You gotta look out for each other. 
Because we are, after all, just pseudopods of the same hyperdimensional process of becoming. I see you, baby. Distal end of infinity. Listening to itself. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Till next week. <laughs>